Samuel Zamuri arrived in America in 1891. He was 14, penniless, and had never heard of bananas. He was a Jew from a small town in Russia and had come to earn money to bring the rest of his family to the States. He didn't know it then, but he would become one of the wealthiest men in the world. He would topple governments. He would create a beautifully efficient company and eventually become the president of one of America's first truly multinational corporations. He lived an extraordinary life with adventure, success, and more than his fair share of black marks against humanity. He was a giant with valuable lessons to teach us about the success and pitfalls of blind ambition wrapped in the inability to see oneself as anything but the hero. This is Humanizing Giants. These are the things I learned from reading The Fish That Ate the Well by Rich Cohen. I'm going directly from the book. So Murray's life is a parable of the American dream. Not history as recorded in textbooks, but the authentic cast-strength version. A subterranean saga of kickbacks, overthrows, and secret deals. The world as it really works. This story can shock and infuriate us, and it does. But I found it invigorating too. It told me that the life of the nation is written not only by speech-making grandees in funny hats, but also street corner boys, immigrant strivers, crazed and driven, some with one good idea, some with thousands, willing to go to the ends of the earth to make their vision real. It meant anyone could write a chapter in that book, be a part of the history, vanish into the jungle, and reemerge as a figure of lore. This was one of the first pages of the book, and it set the stage for Sam's life. It's beautifully written, and it made me think. The pursuit of opportunity is a responsibility that has equal parts moral obligation to create a better world with your personal genius and not burning that world down unnecessarily in the pursuit. This is a primary concern in a world where every decision has second and third order consequences. This is a story about stakes, the stakes of decisions and the lens that we see them through. Sam started with the best of intentions, and for the record, he ended with the best of intentions too, but he lost his way somewhere in the middle. Now, the book jumps forward to the first government that Zamuri overthrew to paint the picture of exactly what that means. We're going to go back to the book. Zamuri was in the process of overthrowing a foreign government. He had been warned by Philander Knox, the U.S. Secretary of State, who ordered federal agents to tail him and his cohorts in New Orleans, but didn't care. If Sam failed, he faced ruin. But if he succeeded, he would become the king in Banana Land. General Bonilla had been president of Honduras. With the right kind of help, he would be president again. So this is setting the stage for Zamuri to be toppling the government of Honduras. So this is a sovereign nation. He's a businessman. Things aren't going the way that he wants them to go. And so he decides to topple the government. General Bonilla, he had been the previous president. And his idea was to get him back into power so that he could maintain the status quo with all of the import duty taxes, all that, those things that would facilitate his business, not only growing, but just surviving. And what this made me think of is what angle do we have to see ourselves from not to be the villain? If there's only one perspective that the light hits just right and that you have to have some polarized lens to make you look like the good guy, you've probably crossed the line. That's the situation that Sam was in. He always saw himself as the good guy, as doing the right thing, whether that was right morally or just pragmatically. That's the light that he saw himself through, that he was doing the right thing. Now we have to ask ourselves, 
and am I having to bend the rays of light around some things that maybe I don't want to expose so that I can see myself as a good guy? It's an internal question that you're going to have to answer for yourself. Anyway, let's go back to the book. This is a great line that shows what I believe is one of Sam's superpowers. Zamuri walked into town, leaving his soldiers to play poker on an overturned rifle case. Bonilla won the big hands. Sometimes, boys, you have to lose with a winning hand so that later you can win with a losing hand, he told him. The ability to zoom out and to get others to zoom out as well and see the big picture, that was one of Sam's superpowers. Because he was always in the center of the work. He was in the jungles, he was in the ships, he was in the rail cars. And this ability to maintain the correct perspective and to help others around him to see this perspective as well, that's what got him from being this poor, penniless immigrant boy at 14 and to see these opportunities to rise to the top of one of the largest companies in the world at the time. It also happens to be the thing that lost him the company in the end when he lost that perspective. Now going back to the book. Sam Zamuri saw his first banana in 1893. In the lore, this is presented as a moment of clarity, wherein the future was revealed. A few examples. The most likely version has Sam seeing that first banana in the wares of a peddler in the alley behind his uncle's store in Selma. The American banana trade had begun 20 years before, but it was still embryonic. So sometimes hindsight is 2020, but only if you're close enough to understand the perspective. If you're too far removed, you miss the important details. All of us, we're used to bananas. We see them all the time. But when Sam saw that, most people hadn't experienced what a banana actually was. And he saw an opportunity wrapped in novelty with the potential to grow. Now, do you remember not knowing what a banana tasted like? Do you remember not knowing the texture of a banana? Do you remember not knowing what to expect when you peeled a banana or even how to peel a banana. Most people don't. Let's go back to the book. Putting us at a further remove from Zamuri is the fact that the kind of banana he saw in Selma in 1893, the banana that made his fortune, the variety known as Big Mike, went extinct in the 1960s. So we have these ideas of bananas. The bananas that we eat now, that we're familiar with, it was a completely different banana than what was commonplace back then. And so the reason I'm outlining this is because it's important for us to keep the proper perspective as we're considering the things that Sam went through, the decisions that he made, and the way that we view them now. It was a different world. Now, that doesn't justify the horrible things that he did. But it does mean that we need to look at those things, those actions, through an accurate lens and not a lens that throws everything under the bus and throws the baby out with the bathwater. So before he became Sam the Banana Man, one of his many nicknames, he was dirt poor and he had to survive. So back to the book. He was looking for different work and would try anything, if only for the experience. His early life was a series of adventures with odd job leading to odd job, much of the color that would later entertain magazine writers Sam's life had the dimensions of a fairy tale, were accumulated in his first few years in Selma. Now, this is a common denominator that we see in successful people across the board. It's the willingness to work for an experience. It's an incredibly common thread 
in the lives of people who build great things and accumulate leverage. Leverage that seems to only stick because of the broad experiences that they've had. Now back to the book. Catch and tie that animal boy. It was Zamuri's first real job, racing through the slop with a rope in his hand. In those days, he told a reporter from life, I could outrun any pig in Dixie. Paid a dollar a week, he kept the job just long enough to know that he would rather be the man who owned the hog than the man who collected the junk, and would rather be the man who discarded the sheet metal than the man who owned the hog. The latter, out of poverty, was materializing right in front of him. So once he had enough money saved, he traveled to Mobile, Alabama so that he could buy some bananas and bring them back to Selma to go into business. And back to the book. Sam would have watched closely as the workers formed lines that snaked from the deck of the ship down a ramp and across the pier into waiting boxcars. He wanted to learn every detail of the trade. So this is another one of Sam's superpowers. He didn't just watch, he studied. And as he studied, he saw a few things. He saw the conventional ways of doing things. And it's important for us to remember that conventional things become conventional because they work. But also, as we have a more developed perspective or sometimes an outside perspective in this example with Sam, is that you can see holes in convention and ways to make improvements. And so he saw the conventional display and that displayed clues of what would lead to his success, opportunities that he could see, that he could seize. And so the opportunity that he saw were the ripes. Now, back in these days, we had all of these bananas. They're put on these steamships that would be coming up from Central America and they would dock in the US. Now the bananas on these steamers, they weren't all the same ripeness. Some of them were more ripe, some of them were less ripe. And they had to be at a certain ripeness for them to be able to go from the ship onto the boxcars to be shipped up across the United States. So for example, from Alabama up to Boston. That's a long trip, especially back in the early 1900s. And so what they would do is they would pull the bananas out that were ripe. So the ones that were all too far gone, they just, they were thrown away completely. The ones that were ripe, that were still good to eat, but wouldn't make the trip, they were set aside. Sometimes they were discarded, they were just thrown away. Other times they were set aside for fruit jobbers. Now, fruit jobbers were people that would come, they would buy these ripe bananas and they'd have like their wagon and they'd go and peddle them in the streets. And what Sam did was he saw an opportunity in these ripes. He saw that he could take all of these ripe bananas that he, that he could buy at a deep, deep discount, load them up on a boxcar and head back to Selma. It was only a couple days journey, I believe. It wasn't very far. And so he knew that he could buy all of these bananas, sell them to grocery stores along the way in just the next couple of days, and he could make money off of that. So he saw something that was waste in the eyes of these larger fruit companies so that they couldn't do anything with because they were just dealing with large volumes. He saw that as his opportunity to get into the trade and start making money. Let's go back to the book. These were the men who created the first market for the banana, which was still expensive, but getting cheaper all the time in the industrial age when food sat in grimy piles in general stores. The banana men sold their product as a natural wonder, the most hygienic of foods, germ-proof in its skin. It was these men who decided 
the fruit should be marketed not as a delicacy for the rich, but as a staple for the poor, hence the effort to lower the price. Now, this was referring to not the fruit jobbers, but the people who owned the large fruit companies and United Fruit was the big one at the time. And I really love that this outlines how the banana went from this really expensive delicacy for the rich down to be marketed as a staple for the poor. And this is one of the first intentionally engineered default settings in American business, at least that I'm aware of. So after a little bit of Googling, Google pays between eight and $12 billion a year to be the default search engine for iPhones or on Mac products. Now, Zamuri and United Fruit, they would end up seeking this same sort of default leverage by becoming the default setting of food for the poor. So let's go back to the book. UF, that's United Fruit, stationed an agent at South Ferry Terminal in New York, where the Ellis Island Ferry landed. Handing a banana to each immigrant who came off the boat, the agent said, Welcome to America. This was to associate the banana with the nation, a delicacy of the new world, though, not, though none of the bananas were grown in the United States, were in fact as foreign as the men and women coming off the boats. At the same time, UF began selling baby food made from bananas, which would hook, hook customers when they were tiny. So this is just to think about, right? You buy an iPhone, you buy some sort of Apple product, Google is the default search engine. Most people never change that. And that's worth eight to $12 billion a year. United Fruit was doing the same thing with bananas the default setting of the food that is associated with America, that is associated with economic calories, that is associated with the earliest memories of food in one's life. To understand Zamuri, we need to understand United Fruit. And that's the fruit behemoth of the late 1800s and early 1900s. By 1910, United Fruit owned one of the largest private navies in the world, 115 ships. Everybody hated, hated, absolutely hated United Fruit in Central and South America. They were the epitome of every negative stereotype in big business. So let's go back to Sam now and talk about him as an individual because he was, a, he was an interesting character. A devotee of fads, this is in the book, a devotee of fads, a nut about his weight, he experimented with diets, now swearing off meat, now swearing off everything but meat, now eating only bananas, now eating everything but bananas. He spent 15 minutes after each meal standing on his head, which he read was good for digestion. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. So I really enjoy the How to Take Over the World podcast. And it's interesting that Ben Wilson, the host, he's outlining outlined quite a few different strange eating patterns in other interesting and great people. So like Edison and Napoleon, they did really weird things with their, with their food. Like Edison, he was just like, I'm just gonna live on milk. That's it. That's all I'm gonna live on. It's just crazy diets like that. So it's going to see these different ways of eating and the obsession that some of these people had with that. Anyway, let's go back to the book. He never sent letters or took notes, preferring to speak in person or by phone. He was described as shy, but I think his actions were more accurately characterized as careful. He did not want to leave a record or draw attention. 
his early life in Russia would have taught him that a Jew in the paper is a Jew in trouble. Now, this makes me think that he was very um, on purpose, put together, right? His communication happened on purpose. He didn't let things just happen. He wasn't necessarily going with the flow. He was always in charge of his actions and the decisions that he made. Let's go back to the book. I believe Zamreri was less the sort of man who didn't care than the sort of man who could make you believe that he didn't care. He was a human being, wasn't he? He must have wanted status and acceptance, these being basic human desires. When he couldn't get acceptance, he sought status. When he couldn't get status, he sought power. He was a quiet man, did not complain, had no giveaways or tells, which does not mean that he was not furious inside. He wanted and wanted, which is why he fought so hard for so long. Why he pinned his enemies to the wall and steadied them with a cool eye. His life was a series of people telling him no over and over and over again. Whether that was because he was Jewish, spoke with an accent, or wasn't rich or affluent enough at the time. He seemed to burn inside with an unquenchable fury and desire to stick it to anyone who wanted to stand in his way. And I can't remember if this quote came from this book or was a different one that I read, but it made me think and reflect on myself. But this is what it says is that the most insecure among us go the furthest. It's the people who feel that need for more that they go the furthest. Now, this can obviously go to like the pathological where people are doing horrible things because of their unbearable insecurity and they just want more and more and more and do more and more and more and things get out of hand. But this is also the way that we progress. We wouldn't keep striving, keep doing, going for more if we didn't believe that it was necessary or that there would be a payoff that would be worth it. So there's two sides to this coin. So let's go back to these notes. It's not just being insecure in the ego sense, but the sense to know what it means to feel hollow from hunger. Okay, so think about this. 14 years old, comes from Russia, penniless, has this desire to build something great, to be rich, to not be poor. And that's stemming from the fact that he came from nothing. He knew exactly what it was like to feel hollow inside, to feel as if he didn't have enough, that he didn't have what he needed. Now that tells us a bit about his personality, but what about his operating system? So let's move to the docs. Okay, so he's made this money, he's, or he's making this money with the ripe bananas, and he wants to expand his business because you can only get so far buying what is essentially the leftover scraps from the bigger guys. So he'd go down to the docks. He knew everyone there by name, but paid special attention to the old timers who had been in the trade since the days of wind powered, of wind power, grizzled and tobacco stained in flop brim hats as sunburned as pirates. They were former big timers now just trying to survive. So this was Sam's version of studying the greats. Just like we study biographies and stories of those who went before us and did the caliber of things that we want to be able to do. He was studying the people who pioneered the trade. He would go down there, he'd have these conversations, he'd talk to them 
about the things that people were doing, the things that they were seeing, so that he could learn. This was his shortcut so that he wouldn't have to climb every rung of the ladder step by step, that he could step and skip three or four or five or six steps along the way and set himself up for success, which is essentially what you and I are attempting to do here as we dis dissect his life. Okay, so beyond that, beyond studying the greats and spending time with these people, he also insisted on being in the details up to his elbows. Zamuri was a habitual limit crasher. He loved feats of endurance, proving himself by watching companions fly. He crossed Honduras on muleback so he could learn the country, meet its people, scout its property. But also years later, a person like me would write the gringo who crossed the country on mule. He could have paid someone to go check it out. He could have done a thousand different things other than cross the entire country thick with jungle on a mule. Now, contextually speaking, like if you've never ridden a mule or a horse, like this is hard to grasp how difficult this would be, right? It's like I've done that a lot out in the desert, right? From growing up, that was just something that we did. I can't imagine going across a country. It's a small country, but going across a country on a mule in a jungle, just to scout it out, just to see it. That's just insane to me. And I believe that tells us a lot about who Sam Zamuri was and the way that he operated and how uncompromising he was. In doing so, he learned important lessons about the country and how he could make his millions. So going back to the book. In setting a price for the property, Zamuri took advantage of the local landowners. He had superior information understood something important lost on the Honduranians. To the peasants, the land was swamp and disease, nothing that will still be nothing in, hundred, in a hundred years. Sam knew better because he was raised on a farm. He realized the meaning of all the black soil beneath the weeds. Because he worked as a jobber, he realized the worth of the fruit that could thrive in that soil. This land picked up for a song was in fact the most valuable banana country in the world. He was a farmer at heart and a businessman. He had a valuable perspective and he had dirt under his fingernails. Those two things have to go together. You can have a unique perspective, a perspective that can make you millions, billions of dollars. But if you don't have the dirt under your fingernails, if you don't have your elbows, or if you're not up to your elbows in the details, the application of that perspective is going to be almost impossible. So you have to be involved, not just thinking and having the gears turning. His experience gave him a unique view that made valuable things obvious to him while it obscured some others. We can apply the same principles to ourselves. We need to find what's obvious to us and leverage it, and then hire somebody else to take care of what's in our blind spots, if we're talking business, or find someone who completes our viewpoint, our perspective, if we're talking relationships. Now, this is something that I can't overstate mostly because I've failed at this so many times that I feel like I can do everything that I don't need help from other people. That I don't need a team that I don't need assistance that I can shoulder all of it. Now in re relationships with my wife, I feel like I do a really good job with that. And I can see the importance of having two people having that teamwork. But I've dropped the ball over and over 
and over again because I've been unwilling to seek, seek assistance in, in building a team for the things that, that I want to be able to accomplish. Let's go back to the book. So Murray worked in the fields beside his engineers, planters and machete men. He was deep in the muck, sweat covered, swinging a blade. He helped map the plantations, plant the rhizomes, clear the weeds, lay the track. He was a proficient snake killer. Workers respect this kind of man in the way that socialites and aristocrats of the time or even today can never understand. So we can think of this in terms of the people that we respect in our day and age. So if you've ever read anything about Steve Jobs or the process that products went through when he was alive, he had his hands in that. People would come to him, they would demo something, and he would make decisions on things that seem very minor, things that, that we may feel wouldn't be that important, but it was because of the design, because of the functionality, because of his taste, that all of these things came together and it created so many great products. So let's come back to Sam. So we have all of this property, right? So he's been across Honduras. He was there on Muleback. But how did he get the property? How did he actually get the funding? First, he had a business partner. And this is a great line from the book. What was Sam's thinking? Piling debt on debt, risk on risk. By buying out Hubbard, so that was his business partner, he bought him out, he was taking it all on his own shoulders. But what did it matter? If he failed by himself, he would lose the exact same amount if he failed with a partner. Everything. When he wanted to borrow more money, his business partner balked. So he bought him out. And that's a big deal because here's somebody who had made some money as a fruit jobber. He got a business partner and they were moving along. Things were going okay. But Sam could see that there was trouble coming. He could see because they weren't big enough to be able to weather any sort of storm. And so what Sam's strategy was to get as much land as humanly possible so that they could get as big as possible to be able to weather different storms, whether those are economic downturns, war, anything at all. He wanted to be able to weather everything. And so to do that, he went into massive amounts of debt. It was a huge risk. And one of the lines in the book are the sayings or phrases in the book that I absolutely loved. And this was talking about with the fruit jobber is that he made calculations based on arrogance. Now that's not something I would necessarily recommend as a business strategy, but it goes to show what's necessary in terms of going all in on yourself, of believing in the fact that you can make something happen, how that's required if you want to be able to do something like this, to build something great. Now, hopefully, when you do that, you're not going to be toppling governments like Sam Murray was, but that same type of commitment is what's required. So let's go back to Sam's life here. So there was trouble on the horizon. His property was in Honduras, and Honduras was in debt to Britain for about $100 million. So the government, this is the U.S. government, asked J.P. Morgan to intervene and to buy these bonds from Britain to protect the Monroe Doctrine. 
So JP Morgan bought up all these bonds at the behest of the government to protect the Monroe Doctrine. In exchange, JP Morgan would levy taxes on all imports and exports, which would ruin Sam. Sam's business could only function with the tax concessions given him by the Honduranian government. So this was the beginning of the first governmental overthrow. So back when we were talking about General Bonilla, this is where that all came from. He lobbied the U.S. government to allow him to maintain his current deal, to keep his sweetheart deal with the taxes, with the import duties and all of those things. And they told him no. And they told him to stay out of the affairs of Honduras. He said, okay. What that really meant was, if you're not going to allow me to win by the rules of your game, then I'm not playing. I'll start a new game with my own rules. So Murray planned to overthrow the government of Honduras and place the former president back in power. That's General Manuel Bonilla. It took two tries. With a handful of mercenaries and some clever propaganda, he eventually did it. He overthrew the government and cemented those tax deals and the import duties for his company. In the process, United Fruit had bought into Sam's company, which was called Cuyamel. And this had to happen to, to keep the company afloat and to avoid antitrust laws because United Fruit was clearly a monopoly. So what they would do is United Fruit would either go out and crush competition or they would buy into the competition to prop the competition up so that they wouldn't be subject to antitrust laws. And so that, that's what happened with Sam's company. They were struggling. United Fruit came in, bought a percentage of Cuyamel to keep the company functioning so that they could say, hey, look, there's Cuyamel. That means we're, we're not a monopoly. We have competition, even though we own a portion of the competition. Now, the downside to this was that they often used Cuyamel's ship for the dirty work, such as breaking the blockade of protesters. Sam once had the best reputation in the area due to his being a man in the jungle who was willing to work in the sun with his men and initially paying 10 times the going rate for labor. So as we're thinking about this, and this is something we'll visit later on in the episode, but Sam, he was loved as an individual in these countries. So Sam Zamuri, the person, the people there, they really liked him because he was out there. He was working. He was in the sun. He was doing all of the hard things that none of the other company bosses could or would do. But as the boss of United Fruit in the future, he became absolutely hated. So it was almost as if there were two separate individuals. Sam Zamuri as a person, they liked him. Sam Zamuri as the boss of United Fruit, the devil incarnate. Let's go back to the book. Now, this is an experience that Sam had with his father-in-law, and it tells you more about him as, as an individual in business. So, look, Jake, now this is his father-in-law. I want you out of business. I'm going to give you money, so you'll be just fine, but I don't want you fooling with the price. I want to set the price. Jake said, I'm not going to give it up. I'm making money. Sam said, well, Jake, you either get out or I'm going to cut my price and drive you out, and you'll be ruined. This strikes me as pragmatically ruthless. It's like a civil war surgeon calmly explaining, 
that a man's leg needs to be amputated as he wipes another man's blood on his apron. It wasn't mean-spirited. It was just something that needed to be done, and it didn't matter if it was his father-in-law. He knew that he needed to control the price if he wanted his business to function as it had been functioning and continue to grow. His father-in-law, who had helped him in the beginning, he was one of those old grizzled veterans down at the docks. His father-in-law had started importing bananas again. And he said, you know what? No, like, I want you to stop because you're messing with the price. I'm going to give you a good deal. I'm going to give you the money that you need so that you can do everything that you need to do. But you have to get out. And it didn't matter that it was his father-in-law because if he wasn't going to play ball, then he was going to go out of business. He was going to force him out of business. And that's the type of individual Sam was in the way that he saw business. Very pragmatic. Not a ton of emotion involved. So that's him dealing with his father-in-law. Down in Central America, there was kind of an unspoken truce in terms of turf. There was a river, and one side of the river was United Fruit, the other side was Cuyamel. Sam basically said, well, to hell with the truce. I'm jumping the river because there's property over here that, that I want, and I need, I need more property so that I can grow my company so it can be big enough to weather these storms that will inevitably come. And in the process, he made an enemy of the largest multinational company in the world. Long story short, there was this contested property and they weren't sure who owned it. Some people in, I believe it was Guatemala maybe, and some people in Honduras both claimed that they owned the property. And so United Fruit was finagling, going through all these courts, trying to figure out who it was so that they could go and buy the property. And what Sam did was instead of doing that, he went to the people who said they owned it in Honduras and he bought it. And then he went to the other group of people who said that they owned it in Guatemala or whatever the other country was, and he bought it from them. So he paid for it twice, but he ended up as the owner of the property. And that really pissed off United Fruit. Eventually, what this led to was basically a, a corporate war, and it threatened to destabilize the government of Honduras again. And it eventually led to Sam selling his company to United Fruit to avoid another toppling of a government. In the end, Sam walked away with $30 million in United Fruit stock, and he was the majority owner of United Fruit. And he essentially promised to retire and signed a non-compete. He retired and during his retirement, he gave away tons of money and he tried to do it anonymously, which was pretty cool. So let's go to the book. For a man like Zamuri, this was less a matter of warm-hearted sympathy than an aspect of the complete life, a requirement. In some ways, the world was better back then. Did not matter if you were kind or mean as a snake. You were supposed to give, so you gave. That's all. He'd clearly been affected by the folk wisdom with what his father told his mother over the dinner table in Russia, that giving with display is not giving, but trading. I give you money, you give me prestige. So 
He gave to universities, built universities and hospitals in Central America, contributed significantly to the creation of Israel. He gave 500000 to the Jewish agency to assist settlers. He gave $700,000 to build a power station in Palestine. In the early 1930s, his fortune was shrinking because United Fruit was being run into the ground. And this is a great passage from the book. The greatness of Zamuri lies in the fact that he never lost faith in his ability to salvage a situation. Bad things happened to him as bad things happened to everyone. But unlike so many, he was never tempted by failure. That's a great line. He was never tempted by failure. He never felt powerless or trapped. He was, as I said, an optimist. He stood in constant defiance with the Secretary of State teamed up with J.P. Morgan and the Honduranian government in a way contrary to Zamuri's interests. He simply changed the Honduranian government. When United Fruit drew a line in the sand at the Utila River, he said, you shall not cross. He crossed anyway. When he was forbidden to build a bridge, he built a bridge and called it something else. For every move, there is a counter move. For every disaster, there is a recovery. He never lost faith in his own agency. With his fortune fast diminishing, it was time to act. So he went to a meeting with the board of directors. And as a man who knew the trade, based upon experience, not just numbers in a ledger, he was absolutely disgusted by what he found in these meetings. So let's go back to the book. The corporate officers, this is discussing that meeting. The corporate officers then discussed a request from a plantation manager who wanted $10,000 to build an irrigation ditch in Guatemala. The executives called on experts who detailed the costs and benefits of the project. Zamuri grew restless. To him, such a debate was symptomatic of a greater problem. The executives running United Fruit did not understand their role what they could and could not do. He raised his hand and stood to speak. This man in Guatemala, he's your manager, isn't he? Samuri asked, yes. Then listen to what the man is telling you. You're here, he's there, said Samuri. If you trust him, trust him. If you don't trust him, fire him and get a man you trust to do the job. This meeting epitomizes the moment the establishment began to give way to the strivers. So, he goes to this meeting, they're debating these things, and this foreman, he's asking, he's like, hey, I need money so that I can pay these guys to build an irrigation ditch. There, he's in like Guatemala or Honduras or something like that. And these guys are sitting in a boardroom in Boston. Sam knows exactly what it's like to be in those places. He knows what it means to need something like that and to need to get it done. And he could see them debating over this and moving the decimals in the ledger and, and it disgusted him. And in that moment, you could see, I can see this in my mind, that Sam knew that he, was, he, he had to do something. And if he didn't do something, all of that work, his entire life, that he went from fruit jobber, buying ripe bananas that nobody wanted and selling them to grocery stores, out of a rail car to becoming one of the wealthiest men in the world, he could see that was going to go away. He was going to lose everything because these idiots in the boardroom didn't understand the important details of the business that he was in. So here's a question. Are you a striver? Are you like Zamuri in this situation? 
Are you, or are you like the person who sits in the boardroom without any real world experience or context to wrap around your decisions? They didn't build the irrigation ditch. And that wasn't okay with Zamuri. So what Zamuri did was he went on tour. He visited shareholders around the country collecting proxies. So these are the voting rights that the shareholders had and they turned them over to him. This is another amazing passage from the book about the next board meeting that he attended. Zamuri waited as the board went through its tasks. When it finally was his turn to speak, he chose each word ex carefully explaining his ideas in the thick Russian accent that he never could shed. It was the accent of neither the Russian bourgeoisie nor the peasant, neither the voice of Tolstoy nor the of Khrushchev. It was the voice of the Jewish pale of settlement, the Yiddish inflected voice of our grandparents, the fruit peddler, the street haggler, the Yid. When Zamuri finished, Wing smiled and said, unfortunately, Mr. Zamuri, I can't understand a word of what you say. The men at the table started to laugh. Zamuri's pupils narrowed to pinpricks. His hands turned into fists. He muttered, then stormed out. Perhaps the board members believed Zamuri had been chased away, was fleeing back to New Orleans. In truth, he had only gone to retrieve his bag of proxies. Returning to the boardroom, he slapped them on the table. You're fired. Can you understand that, Mr. Chairman? His non-compete said he couldn't compete. It didn't say he couldn't take over. Much later, analysts pointed out the flaw in the non-compete clause Zamuri signed at the time of the merger. It barred Zamuri from working for a, a rival or starting a new fruit company but it did not foresee the outlandish possibility of Zamuri taking over United Fruit itself. I didn't want to watch the greatest company in the world go to hell in a hand bucket, Zamuri explained. The first thing he did was go on a six-week tour of the banana lands to talk to the men in the field and see it all for himself. He wanted to see it for himself because he could interpret it for himself. Okay, think about this. We have Steve Jobs and Apple. Apple was built upon the foundation of Steve Jobs' taste. Okay, it's important to make that distinction. Apple has great hardware. They have great software, all of these things, but it's built on the foundation of Steve Jobs' taste, the intersection of hardware and liberal arts, of bringing the product to the person and the product and person, in a sense, melding together. Now, this is similar for Zamuri because United Fruit was dying. It was dying, but Zamuri had the perspective, the expertise, the understanding that was necessary to save the company. And so the company was built upon the experience and the understanding of Zamuri. So similar to Steve Jobs' taste. Now back to the book. I realized that the greatest mistake the United Fruit management had made was to assume it could run its activities in many tropical countries from an office on the 10th floor of a Boston office building. So Murray told Fortune, the management had tried to tell every executive in every country exactly what he must do and how he must do it. Executives on the spot were treated like messenger boys. I completely reversed that policy. I laid down what might be called a constitution for the company. This constitution provided for a maximum 
of home rule in the field. It was established as a fixed policy that if a plantation manager could not handle his difficulties reasonably satisfactorily, we would appoint some man who could. In other words, if you don't have eyes on the plantation or dirt on your hands, you don't get to throw your weight around. Zamuri had the most weight because he had had the most eyes on the most plantations. He'd had his hands in the most dirt and he had all of his skin in the game. Not just somebody else's, but all of his own skin in the game. Two weeks after he took office, the stock price doubled, reaching $26 based simply on the confidence that he gave the market due to his track record and getting out in the trenches. To put this into context, when he sold Kuyamel for UF stock, it had been at $108.50. He only planned to stay a few years to right the ship, but UF ended up needing more help and he stayed on for another 20 years because the company simply couldn't survive without him. He had created a position that couldn't be filled by any single individual other than himself. So this is something that we can and need to think about in our own lives and our own businesses. We set things up that are optimized for us, but we have to consider who may need to fill that role afterwards. For Zamuri, there was no possible way for a single individual to fill his shoes because nobody else had his same combination or anything even close to the same combination of experiences and skills. So in our own lives, where are we creating bottlenecks for maybe the next generation that could be in our kids' lives or in the lives of our employees, the other people that we work with? Where are we slowing things down because we're over-optimizing for ourselves for the moment right now without any consideration of the future? One of the barriers that he encountered while he was head of UF was Guatemala and his playbook hadn't changed. If the person in power wasn't playing ball, then you put someone else in charge. Though his playbook hadn't changed, it had evolved. United Fruit had people with their best interests at heart at every level of the government, including Alan Dules, the head of the CIA, who was the brother of John Foster Dules, a high-powered attorney who worked intimately with United Fruit. Jacob Arbenz was the leader of Guatemala, and he wasn't playing ball. He needed to go. This time, Zamuri wasn't going to do it on his own. He'd have the backing of the U.S. government, thanks to some clever propaganda which painted Arbenz as an ardent communist. Mind you, this was the 1950s, and communism wasn't taken lightly. The irony is that most of Arbenz's policies were modeled after Roosevelt and the New Deal rather than Marx. So Guatemala wasn't presented as a threat to corporate interests. It was presented as a threat to America itself. And with the help of the CIA, United Fruit overthrew Arbenz and Zamuri got everything he wanted. It ended up being a little bit too much. Let's go back to the book. Rarely does a skirmish end so decisively with the disputed issues resolved in such a satisfactory fashion. It was the most lopsided victory in the history of United Fruit. Too lopsided. Did Zamuri realize the danger his company faced 
not as a result of its losses, but as a result of its wins, which had been too splashy, too much of a good thing. As Guatemala, as Guatemala settled back into its pre-revolutionary slumber, United Fruit found itself in the position of the fisherman who had gone out to catch a trout for dinner, but hooked a shark instead. Sam should have known, must have known, the coup in Guatemala violated a rule he had practiced all his life. Do not draw unnecessary attention. In the days that followed the defeat of Arbenz, American newspapermen and government officials seemed to wake from a dream. Reporters began to make connection. Alan Duels, John Foster Duels, Thomas Cabot, the Secretary of State and former President of United Fruit, all worked for United Fruit before they worked for the United States. Unless, of course, they never stopped working for United Fruit. Eisenhower promised to investigate. Unless, of course, they never stopped working for United Fruit. Eisenhower promised to investigate. The overthrow had all the ingredients of irony. Meant to prevent the establishment of a communist beachhead in the hemisphere, it would help create such a beachhead in Cuba. Meant to make Guatemala friendly for the company, it would engender such hostility that the company was eventually forced to abandon the isthmus altogether. So initially, Zamuri started out as this immigrant boy who had no money. Bought a few bananas, sold them, made enough money to get a business partner, went and bought a ton of property in Central America, bought out his business partner, created a massive business, eventually sold it to United Fruit, one of the largest businesses or largest corporations in the world at the time, became the president of United Fruit and then toppled another government in Guatemala. All of these things. It was kind of a climax when he became the president of United Fruit and things trickled down after the fall of Guatemala because there was just too much. It was just too obvious that the deck had been stacked in the favor of this large corporation. Let's go back to Sam in the book. He tried to change his legacy at the end of the game, built roads and hospitals, train depots, water systems, but it was too late. The story of United Fruit had been written. I feel guilty about some of the things we did, he said. All we cared about was dividends. Well, we can't do business that way today. We have learned that what's best for the countries we operate in is best for the company. Maybe we can't make the people love us, but we will make ourselves so useful to them that they will want us to stay. He learned that you can't, that you can only extract value for so long before you're forced to provide value. Had he realized this when he had taken over United Fruit, the outcome would have likely been totally different. Instead of trying to overthrow a government or to remove somebody from power who's not playing ball, he could have taken the stance of, hey, you know what? What value can we provide for these people? How can we make their lives better? How can our presence improve the lives of the people who live in this area? Rather than we're going to strong arm them and try to get the CIA to do our dirty work would have been different. Now we're coming back to this idea I said we'd revisit at the end of the episode. Now this comes directly from the book. As a man, he was admired, even respected. This had to do with his love for Honduras and its people. As the boss of United Fruit, 
he was abhorred. So Sam, when he left the jungle, he could never be the same man. Whatever good he thought he was doing, he was too far away to see any evidence of that good. And so for all intents and purposes, it was imaginary. And for the people who were living in those countries, it was absolutely imaginary because it didn't exist. Sam took over the company because these people in the boardroom in Boston, they were making decisions or running the company into the ground. Slowly over time, Sam became those same people. He was detached from the company. He was too far away. And so I believe one of the most powerful lessons that we can take from Sam's life is that we have to stay in the details up to our elbows. We have to keep dirt under our fingernails if we want to build something great. The more detached we are from the building of the product, of the business, of the marriage, of the family, whatever it is, if we are detached from it, progress will stall and it'll begin to rot. I think that's the word that describes it the best. When we detach ourselves from the things that we build, from the things that we care about, they begin to rot. It's our attention, our presence, our devotion that preserves those things, that allows them to grow. So we can take that lesson, we can take it home. Learn from Sam. He did amazing things in business and he made some giant mistakes in relation to humanity. He was a giant. He was human, just like you and just like me.